0: Would you please stand for the reading of the scripture, coming from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, uh, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm... Be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. Thank you, Jacob. It is good to have a number of answers to prayer back with us this morning. Uh, we're very glad for, for each one of you that's here, but especially when we see folks we've been praying for and they are back with us again. Um, that's, that's exciting. Um, also, it didn't make it into the uh, bulletin because of kind of the timing. We are glad to have Chase Rush with us this morning after some uh, scary, uh, scary incident this past week, and uh, he has some testing on Friday, so please keep him and the family in your prayer, but we certainly praise God for watching over him and, and keeping him safe this week. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this morning and this time to come into your presence. We ask that Your Holy Spirit would just be free to work and move among us. Heavenly Father, just open us up to what You need to say to us this morning. Um, This is a message that could probably impact us in in quite a few different ways. And, And You know what that way is for each one of us. So just have Your way and guide my words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Cocky Christians, yes, probably a rather unusual uh, title for a sermon, but uh, the phrase came up last week in our young adult Sunday school class, and I kind of had to smile. I think it was in answer to the question, are you ever tempted to feel superior to unbelievers or to Christians who live less righteously than you? First, there was a very honest admission that, yes, we do have that tendency. And then someone mentioned that sometimes as Christians, we can become rather cocky. Thank you, Travis. And that there is a danger in that. There was a a guy who lived in Lebanon when I was ministering there. And when I think of the word cocky, his face appears immediately. And the thing is, this guy had nothing to be cocky about. His wife, his life was pretty messed up, and he was majorly annoying. I actually said something to him once about wanting to punch his lights out, but that's a whole long story that I won't get into this morning. Not recommended pastoral bedside uh, care, but... It happened. Like I said, it's a long story. I should say that his cockiness had almost just cost him his life. So, there is that. We have nothing to be cocky about as followers of Jesus Christ. We are saved totally by grace. We have no righteousness of our own. And apart from Him, we can do nothing. Apart from Him, we have no good thing in ourselves. And when we get cocky about our faith or our spirituality, we are headed for disaster. Our text this morning from Paul is basically a warning against overconfidence. There are signs that the church in Corinth was getting a bit cocky. They were proud of their knowledge. They were intent on living out their freedoms and and exercising their rights. They thought they could handle anything. They thought that they were were strong and invulnerable to the forces of evil around them. That they could be closely associated with pagan worshipers and it would have no effect on them. Paul knew better. He probably agreed with the writer of Proverbs 16.18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And he knew the dangers in being a cocky Christian. Paul uses a history lesson from the Israelites to drive home this warning. He he begins by pointing out our common identification with the Jews. They were God's chosen people under the Old Covenant. We are God's chosen people under the New Covenant. There are even similarities at the way in which both they and we arrived at this this position. And and Paul points some of these out. Then he addresses some major failings of the Jews. Evils they fell into for which God punished them severely. These same dangers existed in Corinth and would do great harm to the church if they were not careful. And then finally, he points out the need to live carefully. The need to recognize temptation and to stand strong in the face of what Satan is throwing at us. Let's start with our common identity as God's people. The Jews were chosen by God. God chose Abraham when he was living in Haran. He was a stranger to God. He was a pagan in an idol-worshiping nation. But God made Himself known to him. And He called him to leave his homeland. to, To follow him. And to worship him alone. He made a promise to Abraham that he would make a great nation of his descendants. And that he would be their God. And he would be their people. Likewise, We are a chosen people. Peter wrote, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. And in Ephesians 1 we read, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and His will. We were chosen in Christ. God made Himself known to us. And He called us out of that old, empty way of living into a new life in Him. As Paul alludes to here, the Jews were delivered from bondage in Egypt. And that deliverance was miraculous and spectacular. There there were plagues that ravaged the nation of Egypt. There was the parting of the Red Sea. And and there was the pillar of cloud and the, the pillar of fire that led them by day and by night. What about our deliverance? What about the delivery that's happened in our lives? We've been delivered from the condemnation and the power of sin. We, we are no longer slaves to our old nature. Satan no longer has us in his grip. We've been freed to live for Jesus. And the Holy Spirit lives in us and can transform our lives. All of that through Jesus' death and resurrection. And then Paul mentions baptism. He wasn't talking about the physical ceremony. The Jews were not physically baptized in the cloud Or or in the sea. The the cloud was the glory of God. It wasn't wasn't rain. And the sea was parted so that they crossed over on dry land. But the baptism was a spiritual identification with Moses and with God's people. Through their common deliverance, they were joined together under the authority and leadership of of God through Moses. Our baptism, is an outward sign of an inward change. And it's an identification with Christ and with the body of Christ. It declares that we are under His power and under His authority, that we belong to Him. Paul also says that they were sustained spiritually through Jesus Christ. There was a strange legend that was popular among the Jews that the rock that Moses struck in his attempt to get water, actually followed them through the wilderness from that point on, supplying water wherever they went. And, and Paul may have been borrowing on that image when he wrote, "...for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them." And that rock was Christ. But he was pointing not to the rock, but to Christ. Their, sus- their sustenance was largely physical. Physical manna. Physical water. But it was from a spiritual source, which Peter sees as Jesus himself. Interestingly, the word, Paul, the word that Paul uses here for rock is petra rather than petros. And that indicates a massive rock cliff, as opposed to simply a large stone. Jesus is our massive rock. He is that that huge, strong force in our lives. And from Him, we receive not only our physical needs, but we get our our spiritual manna. We get the, the bread of life. The Word. The Word that comes from the very heart of God. And we get spiritual water. Water that brings life and healing. Water that satisfies our spiritual thirst so that we don't need to go to any other source or seek any other fountain. So as Christians, we can identify with the children of Israel. Like them, we've been chosen by God. We've been delivered from bondage. We've been identified with His chosen people in baptism. And we are continually sustained by His mighty power. But now comes the warning that we also need to hear. God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered over the desert. How many of the Israelites, probably over a million strong, when they left Egypt, how many of them actually entered the Promised Land? Two that we know of. Joshua and Caleb. Maybe there were others, but very few. We're God's people. But failure to live as God's people puts us in a dangerous position. It puts us in a dangerous position. Paul gives rather frightening details on on some of those who had died in the wilderness. Four instances of of great failure and incurring God's anger and God's judgment. Paul makes it clear that that these events are to serve to us as a warning. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil. As they did. These things happened to them as examples. And were written down as warnings to us. On whom the culmination of the age has come. The culmination of the age is Jesus Christ in the age of grace in which we now live. The fact that we are under grace and no longer under, no, under law does not eliminate the danger of careless living. Unconfessed sin still distances us from God our Father. It damages our relationship with Jesus Christ and it hinders the Holy Spirit from working and moving in our lives. So it makes us even more vulnerable to Satan. Satan it can give him a stronghold in our lives where sinfulness just continues to grow. Paul first addresses idolatry. Idolatry. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The incident to which Paul refers is found in Exodus 32. It's a fairly familiar story. Moses was up on the mountain, and the people grew restless. Aaron collected their gold jewelry, fashioned it into a calf, and proclaimed a feast or a festival to the Lord. But the festival included worshiping the golden calf, and also the kind of sexual perversion that was common in the pagan worship, of, worship in Egypt. When Moses returned, he burned the calf, ground it into a powder, mixed it with water, and made them drink it. At Moses' instructions, the Levites killed 3,000 of them. And God followed that up with the plague. I think we've long realized that idols don't have to be physical images of, of wood or gold. Anything that takes first place in our life away from God is an idol. Anything that gets in the way of true worship and devotion to God is an idol. We've talked about idols such as success, power, wealth, reputation, and so on, for which some people sacrifice a great deal. And we need to examine our own lives for those idols. But the fact that Aaron attempted to incorporate the golden calf into a festival for, for Jehovah God, raises a question in my mind. What idols do we bring into our worship? If we've got to have videos and contemporary music to worship, that is an idol. On the other hand, if we can't abide videos or any music that's not in the hymnal, that's an idol too. If we have to be in a particular room, in a particular building to worship, then that room and that building is an idol. We ought to be able to worship anywhere. In the basement, in a classroom, out under the pavilion, even in our cars in the parking lot. Remember that? I thought that was okay. It might not have been the the greatest thing, but we could still worship. Anywhere we are should be a place of worship. We could talk about other elements of our service. Anything that gets in the way of our worship and our devotion to God alone, is an idol. The second warning is against sexual immorality. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. The reference here is Numbers 25. The men of Israel engage in sexual immorality with the Moabite women in connection with Baal worship. At Moses' instructions, 23,000 were put to death, and apparently 24,000 more died in a plague. Immorality and idolatry go hand in hand. It was true in the pagan nations around Israel, and when they took their eyes off Jehovah God, it became true for them as well. It was true in Corinth. And it was already beginning to plague the church there. And it should be obvious to us that it's true right here and now, all around us, in our nation, in our communities. We must be on guard. We must keep our eyes on Jesus and stand firm in the truth and the authority of the Word of God or it will become true of us. The third warning is against testing the Lord. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. In Numbers 21, we find the, the Israelites growing impatient w- with God, complaining about His care, accusing Him of, of bringing them out into the desert to die, of forgetting about them. So God sent venomous snakes to bite them. Again, many of them died. There are many different ways that we can test God. When we fight against God's plan for our life, when we doubt His his power and His ability to meet our needs, when we accuse Him of not caring for us or forgetting about us, when we act deceptively with our brothers and sisters in Christ, as Ananias and Sapphira did, when we live carelessly and expect God to to look uh, the other way or to bail us out of the consequences that follow, In those situations, we're putting God to the test. And we're entering dangerous territory. Fourth warning is about grumbling. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. You notice there's a lot of death going on as a result of these evils in which they were caught. These evils which we are warned about. In number 16, all Israel began to complain against Moses and Aaron. And God was angered that he killed 14,700 people with another plague. Now maybe you're thinking, I realize grumbling and complaining aren't good things, but but I really don't think they're in the top four evils in the church. And, And I certainly don't think they're nearly as bad as idol worship or immorality or testing God. I could give you an assignment that I almost guarantee would change your thinking. Pastor a church for eight or nine years. Or oversee a bunch of them, as Paul did. You'll see the discouragement and the disillusionment that grumbling causes. The disunity it fosters. The forward motion, the forward momentum that it destroys. It just might climb to number one on your list. And you might become very, very tired of the damage it does to the body of Christ. We're so adept at complaining that we can do it without saying a word. We can grumble through our actions. We can grumble through our attitudes. We can grumble through our attendance or our lack of it. It's no less damaging. Paul's answer to these potential dangers might be summed up with the phrase, let's be careful out there. Phrase was made, po- made famous uh, on an old uh, detective police TV show. I don't think you ever watched an, e- an episode. But as the police officers were exiting the briefing room to hit the streets of the Bronx, the sergeant would call out, let's be careful out there. I think it's probably been appropriated to a few other police shows as well. But that's basically what Paul is telling us in these verses. Don't get cocky. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The Bible is full of examples of the danger of overconfidence. Peter denying Jesus. David falling into adultery with Bathsheba are probably two prime examples. A number of years ago, Dr. Howard Hendricks conducted a study of 246 men in full-time ministry. And this is a quote who were without a doubt committed to Jesus Christ. Yet within a 24-month period, each of them became involved in sexual immorality. After interviewing each man, Dr. Hendricks discovered four correlations between these 246 men. First, none were involved in any kind of personal support group. Second, Each had ceased to invest in a daily, personal, prayer time, Scripture reading and worship. Third, over 80% became sexually involved with another woman as a result of counseling that woman. And four, and it says, And without exception, each of the 246 became convinced that moral failure, and again I'm quoting, will never happen to me they were convinced that moral failure would never happen to me. We cannot rely on ourselves. We must never lose sight of our own vulnerability to sin. We must rely on God and continue to build ourselves up in Him, in His Word, in the personal relationship that we have with Him. Without that, we will fall. Paul points out that our temptations are common to all. The the Greek word for temptation simply means to test or prove. It doesn't necessarily have a positive or negative connotation. Satan brings temptation into our lives in order to separate us from Jesus Christ. God allows those temptations in order to prove our faithfulness and our devotion to Him, as was the case with Job in the Old Testament. The outcome is in our hands. The key here is that these temptations are common to all. Too often we think no one else would be, would be tempted to do that or, or, or think that or to have that attitude. So, so I must really be a horrible person. So we don't share our experiences. We cover them up. We don't seek help from others. We don't extend help to others. And that common help can be vital in the body and in the family. Author and minister Bob Russell says, When I was a teenager, my mother had a rule. Don't ever bring your girlfriend to our house when no one is here. And I'd always say, Mom, why don't you trust me? She always had the same answer. No. That's too much temptation. I would act like I was really hurt. My own mother doesn't trust me. That's terrible. But I'd walk away and deep inside I'd think, My mom's pretty sharp. She knows what I'm thinking. He goes on, My mother believed in the sin nature, that it needed to be restrained more than my self-esteem needed to be boosted. Otherwise, maybe I wouldn't be here today. God's faithfulness is revealed even in the temptations we face. He always provides a way out of the temptation. Of course, He's given us His Word. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us a brain and hopefully a little common sense. He's also given us access to the throne of grace through prayer. The opportunity to call out to Him when temptation threatens to overwhelm us. Often, the best opportunity for escape is to never put ourselves in certain positions in the first place. Hence that part of the Lord's Prayer that says, "...lead us not into temptation." Think of it this way, in every dark room of temptation, no matter how dark and overpowering that temptation may seem, God has provided a doorway with a great big exit sign over it. Our responsibility is to take the way out, to recognize that door and walk, or better yet, run through it. The air war over Bosnia in the late 1990's made famous the escape of Scott O'Grady. The downed American flyer escaped capture for days in enemy territory until rescue helicopters found him. When the helicopter landed in the clearing where O'Grady was hiding, he didn't relax in the brush and wait for the pilot to come get him. He shook off the fatigue, fought through the brushes, drew his weapon, and with every source of energy he had, he ran to the escape that had provided for, had been provided for him. Brian Chappell writes, His actions parallel the engagement God requires of us in spiritual warfare. We should not assume that because God promises a way out of temptation, we have no role in our own rescue. God always provides a way of escape, but He may also require effort from us. I think we could eliminate the word may. God does require effort on our part. We need to recognize our own vulnerability, our own areas of weakness. We need to strengthen our relationship with Jesus through prayer and worship. We need to build ourselves up in the knowledge and the application of God's Word. And we need to become more adept at hearing that still small voice of the Spirit so that He can direct our paths. We also need to recognize the dangers and the damage of sin and commit ourselves to more fully resisting temptation. To stand firm against Satan's schemes. The question I want to leave with you this morning is, are you living carefully as one of God's chosen people? Are you living carefully as one of God's chosen people? Are you living in a way that unlike most of those Israelites who fell in the desert, that God will be pleased with you and that you will be able to reach the goal that God has set before you? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, We admit to you that there are times that we grow careless. There are times when we are a bit cocky about our spirituality, about our righteousness, about the place that we have as your people. And Lord, there is no place for that. Help us to live carefully. Drawing strength from You, from Your Word, from Your Holy Spirit. That we might not fall. That we might not become enveloped in sin. But that we might serve You and be the people that You called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.